Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Habib. And today's episode's a little bit different. Uh, on this episode, I am being interviewed by Dr. Michael Kay of the Institute for Functional Health. And I'm being interviewed for his YouTube channel, which we did as a YouTube live. And uh, we loved the interview so much and it went as well as it did that I really wanted to share this interview with all of you. So without further ado, please uh, enjoy this episode of the Health Upgrade podcast with Dr. Michael Kay interviewing me, Dr. Habib, on the functional medicine approach to upgrading the vagus nerve. Have a great day. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Michael Kay from the Center for Functional Health, and I'm very much looking forward to tonight's interview with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Uh, he is the author of Activate Your Vagus Nerve. Um, I have the book right here. I've highlighted the book. I've dog-eared the pages. I got lots of questions tonight. We were just talking before we got on, and he shared some very interesting studies uh, about the vagus nerve. So, Dr. Habib, welcome, welcome. It's very, very nice to be here, Michael. Great to see you again. So before we get started, can you share with everybody your background, please? Absolutely. I am by training a chiropractor. And uh, when I was in chiropractor college, my health was in terrible shape. I used to weigh 250 pounds, high blood pressure, borderline diabetes, bunch of metabolic health issues that somebody in their 20s should not have, let alone somebody in their 50s and 60s. And I was dealing with a lot of these health struggles. And it was interesting because I was learning about health and learning about how to share health with my patients, yet not implementing in my own life, which is a really uh, unfortunate scenario. But if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't be where I am now. And it was uh, completing chiropractic college. I was uh, voted valedictorian of my class, which was wonderful. Uh, learned a lot there, have great, wonderful friends that I continue to stay in touch with years later. And after I got out, met my wife, we uh, decided before we wanted to have kids that we needed to do something about our health. And this led us down the path of figuring out what was going on with my weight, with our overall health struggles. And it pushed us into down a full rabbit hole of the calorie counting and the paleo and the whole 30. And then we got into a point where it seemed like I was ready to learn something really interesting and new. And that was functional medicine. And it came across a very interesting way. I was working at a chiropractic clinic in Mississauga, Ontario. So not too far from home right now. And uh, a gentleman walked into the office and he said that his wife had been in a, a mild car accident, but needed some chiropractic care. And I was in a spot where I normally never am standing, uh, but I was standing right there and I started chatting with this gentleman. He said he was a chiropractor, but he didn't practice chiropractic anymore. And I said, what else does a chiropractor do? And he said, I practice functional medicine. And my mind exploded because I didn't know what this was and I wanted to learn what he was doing. And this gentleman turned out to be none other than Sachin Patel, who is the gentleman that introduced the two of us and brought us together, which was quite interesting. Um, over the next many months, Sachin and I started to have lots of good conversations. He introduced me to the whole concept of functional medicine, functional health, understanding what health was and not just simply the absence of disease. 
And what were the little patterns and little things that were causing these issues at the root cause of my health struggles? And we did some functional lab testing. I learned from one of the masters in, in the game. And eventually my weight came down, my health significantly improved and things just got significantly better overall in my health because of this. And that's my background. I, I ended up getting rid of my other chiropractic practice. I do very minimal hands-on work anymore. I shifted primarily to supporting patients in this particular way because of the positive impact that it's had in my life. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, as, as, yeah, there's the love for functional medicine and not that, not that chiropractic is bad. It's not, um, you know, I think it's, I think it was like, you know, this is just another branch, another extension of, of chiropractic, you know, looking at this upstream effect as opposed to waiting until it's downstream. So yeah. when you're going through this change, what do you think really pushed the needle forward? What, what was the one thing that you did that this really made a difference? Cause you already did, you know, you tried the different whole diets, the paleo, whole 30, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you did some testing, but what was that one thing? Like, okay, this, this actually started moving the needle forward. Yeah. I think it was a testing for me, honestly. I will say um, identifying the specific root causes or challenges in my microbiome were um, where I was able to see that I was dealing with a particular yeast that is very rare, but I had it and it was high and that was triggering a lot of my uh, sugar cravings, my carb cravings, and then addressing that particular piece of the puzzle. Honestly, that one was just so eye-opening because I didn't have an answer as to what was causing these issues prior to this. And then once I got that answer and I did something about it, I just felt like initially there was this massive feeling of hope that I was like, there's actually something behind this. It's not me. It's not my fault that there's something biochemically that's causing this, that I can go down this path and address that root cause upstream. And just to kind of point to your question there or to the, your comment, you mentioned that uh, addressing upstream. That's basically what chiropractic tries to do, but very much on the physical side. Right. And this was a shift because it was biochemistry. It was looking at the biochemistry from a root cause perspective without the addition of medication, without the addition of, of surgery or interventions that can be invasive. What it allowed was personal responsibility to be taken for what was causing those issues and what I could do about it. And that was the game changer, no question. Fantastic. So in your current practice, do the patients you see, are they more geared towards those with gut issues, autoimmune? Where where do you like to practice? What is your like that perfect patient that walks in? And every patient's perfect that walks in, right? Absolutely. And for me, they don't walk in. I work online, which is really exciting. I work entirely through telemedicine, telehealth, which is great. Um, and I get it's funny, I get kind of two different avenues where people come to see me through. Number one is going to be the chronic health conditions. Anything that's associated with vagus nerve dysfunction, most commonly it's going to be digestive or autoimmune in nature. There is a little bit of metabolic thrown in there as well, but we all, we know as functional medicine practitioners, they're all associated with one another to some extent. The other pocket that comes to me is actually a lot of executives and high-performing professionals and uh, entrepreneurs that want to create longevity and productivity in their optimized state. And we work on creating optimal health in that particular pattern as well. So there's two pockets of people that I tend to do my own work with. Yeah. 
Fantastic. You know, in, obviously going through school, we, you know, we hear about the vagus nerve, right? We learn about the vagus nerve, yep. but somewhere along the line in your practice along this way, you're like, boy, this just really is just resonating with you. Right. And like resonating to enough where you go, I have to write a book about it. So yeah. what was happening in practice that you saw this vagus nerve is really playing a role in so, so many of the clinical presentations that we see in the office? Yeah, I'll say that um, while I was in my medical sciences uh, undergraduate program, it was around that same time that a discovery was made that really highlighted this to me. And I, it was kind of a parallel discovery to my interest in the vagus nerve. And that was an entire pathway called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, okay? This pathway was discovered um, in the early 2000s by Kevin Tracy and a group at the Feinstein Institute. We don't need to know all the specifics, but essentially this guy's gonna win the Nobel Prize soon for having discovered this because the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway is literally the pathway by which we control um, inflammation and cellular activation uh, immune cell activation in particular, uh, through the entirety of the body. And what was discovered is that that pathway runs through the vagus nerve, that the vagus nerve for us is the neurological or the brain-centered mediator of that entire pathway. We essentially have, in effect, a neural control mechanism, a brain-focused or brain-centered control mechanism that can affect the immune system directly. And that's what's really exciting about this pathway. So we, you mentioned this, we kind of gloss over it in school, right? We mm-hmm. hear the vagus nerve, it's cranial nerve 10, right. it's vagus, it's the wanderer, it goes everywhere. Right. And it's the parasympathetic nerve, it does the rest and digest system. And that's the extent of the learning that we have generally when it comes to the vagus nerve. C is the answer. Markov C, you got yeah, it? Move on, it. right? Move on, yeah. exactly. And that's that, it, we all gloss over it. For some reason, this nerve really resonated with me. I didn't, I, I was so curious to find out why did this nerve go everywhere? This is the only nerve in the body that has as extensive innervation or pathways to all these different organs than any other nerve in the body. Like not a single other nerve does anything near what the vagus nerve does. What's so special about this nerve? Like it's it's the 10th cranial nerve. We have 12 pairs of cranial nerves. What would be so special about this one? Why is it so different? And it was this pathway that I was able to link these two kind of pieces together um, and, and bring it into an area where functional practitioners such as ourselves were able to then utilize it effectively. And that's what was really exciting to me. That's what really helped to outline or highlight to me, the importance of it and how we can utilize it. Because if it's a brain-based thing, we have control over it. We can control when our nerves turn on and off. We can shift our state from sympathetic to parasympathetic. We can actually then, in effect, control inflammation with our thoughts and our actions. And that's what was really exciting because it was allowing for personal responsibility and personal uh ability to take care of these health challenges. Excellent. I, I'm going to read something to you from the book that you wrote that really like, I, I thought this was absolutely just point. The vagus nerve is the conductor of the human body symphony orchestra, it regulates the function of so many different organs and cells in our body, but it can only do so if it's functioning optimally. 
right? So that's it in the, in the nutshell, right? So if it's not functioning optimally, there are so many physiological systems that can go awry. Yeah. That's, that's, I feel in conventional medicine and nothing against these guys. I work with these guys all the time. I love them, but it's just to them kind of like us in the beginning, it's just a vagus nerve is overlooked, right? So when I speak with the docs, it's not even like, we're not even discussing sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? That's just not a conversation we're going to have. And to discuss that in relationship to the immune system or discuss that in relationship to inflammation, we're just going to have to put that on backside. I'm going to have to go around a different way to get this patient healthy. So let's talk about sympathetic and parasympathetic. Let's talk about the vagus nerve and you can share a little bit of the anatomy of it, like how important this actually is. And you have a beautiful illustration in your book that really shows how important that vagus nerve is. And then it branches off of the vagus nerve as well. Because a lot of times people think it's the vagus nerve, you know, they'll go gut brain. You know, that's that's easy, right? Yep. Brain gut and stuff like that. But these branches that go to all our different organs. So we can talk about that. For sure. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. And I appreciate the the uh, shout out to that specific uh, line in the book. It, it really was uh, for me, it, it is a conductor of that symphony orchestra. And you can imagine that a symphony that has a conductor that isn't able to do their job, that all of the little instruments, all of the different areas in that symphony are not going to be able to work together in harmony. And what will happen eventually is chaos. And that's what often happens in so many health conditions. So let's start with the anatomy. Let's understand where the vagus nerve lies. What does it actually go to? What are the connection points? And then we can talk about the specific functions that are there on the parasympathetic and, and the sympathetic side that it's uh, working in kind of conjunction with or opposition to. So anatomy wise, I mentioned this, it's the 10th cranial nerve. So it is coming out of the brainstem and that's where the majority of our cranial nerves will come out of. Uh, it's an area just below what we know as the brain. It's kind of a thickening at the top of the spinal cord within the, um, the cranial cavity. And from there, we have a lot of these nuclei, which are essentially connections of gray matter, uh, cell bodies and synapses occurring within that brainstem. And there's four nuclei in there. We don't need to know the names, but there's four nuclei in there that are connected to this branch of the vagus nerve. And these four branches come together and then they form what's called the vagus nerve. That nerve comes out through um, a, a small cavity in the, uh, in the cranium. In, in the skull and then it sends a branch to the ear very important one okay and that's where it actually sends sensation and there's actually an area on the ear uh, particularly the tragus and a little bit on the inside of the concha of the ear that are uh, the skin is innervated by the vagus nerve and that's going to be really important when we get to therapy and how do we help fix this so uh, an important one to note it then continues on down send some branches to the pharyngeal and laryngeal branches. These are to the pharynx, which are the muscles at the back of the throat, and the larynx, which are the muscles around the vocal cords. And so they are the ones that create tension in the larynx muscles, and that allows for our vocal cords to actually raise tone and pitch within our voice. So a quick little uh, thing to check is how monotone are you? Are you able to go really, really low or really, really high with your voice? just by trying to. And by doing so, that can be a sign of vagus nerve function or dysfunction. Just a quick little fun side note there. But these are motor branches. These are going to muscles, just like a whole bunch of other nerves do. So it's not really 
the parasympathetic nervous system there. But these are specific branches that we can again utilize in a therapeutic sense to help improve vagus nerve function. Uh, really important branches there. It continues on down through the neck. And what's really interesting here is in the neck, it comes down alongside two very important structures, your carotid artery and your jugular vein. And we've got one on each side of all three of these structures and they work together. They are all encased in a little fascia layer called the carotid sheath. And basically you can find it literally by finding your pulse. If you just go with two fingers in front of your sternocleidomastoid muscle, which is kind of right from the stern, uh, the excuse me, your mastoid bone right here at the base of your, uh, behind your ear, the bone that's right there. And it comes right down across to your sternum, right uh, below your neck, okay? And that muscle uh, kind of overlies this carotid artery. So if you could just go right in front of that muscle, you'll find your pulse. And essentially, if you found your pulse, you're within a couple of millimeters of finding your vagus nerve. You won't feel it directly. It's very small uh, relative to the carotid artery, but it is there 100%. The jugular vein is also there. This is important because these two structures, the carotid artery and jugular vein, are the structures that bring blood, meaning oxygen and nutrients, to your brain and from your brain back down via the jugular vein. That means that your brain can't function if these two blood vessels are occluded or damaged in any way. So those two are really important, but the vagus nerve runs with them. So there should be something there to say that, man, this is a pretty important structure because these three things that if two of them are not working, we're probably not living. The other one is there with them. So there must be something to this. It then comes down into the thorax, which is a chest area, and it sends branches to the heart and to the lungs. And those branches are important because they are the ones that help to lower the heart rate uh, on the heart side specifically, they help bring the heart down into that optimal 40 to 70 beats per minute uh, in at the heart level. Otherwise, the heart would be beating much faster. And then on the lung side, it doesn't actually create movement in the lungs, but what it does is it monitors the immune cells that are present in the lungs. And those immune cells are called macrophages. And we'll talk a bit about macrophages, which are the targets of that cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway via the vagus nerve. But that's not where it ends. The vagus nerve continues down, coiling around the esophagus as it goes down into your abdomen, into uh, the area below your diaphragm, where it then branches as far as the eye can see, basically. Branches to the stomach, to the small intestine, to the large intestine, to the pancreas, to the gallbladder, to the liver, not directly to the spleen, but that's an important one. And it does eventually get to the large intestine. On the spleen side, we have a branch from the vagus nerve that goes to the 10th uh, sympathetic chain ganglia. It's a very specific ganglia. And what it does is it tells the sympathetic ganglia through acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter used by um, the vagus nerve, to send a signal to the spleen to turn on acetylcholine activation through the rest of the body. And what that does is it tells the spleen which is our primary immune organ within our body, meaning that it houses all of the uh, white blood cells, the cells that go out to the rest of the body when there's a fire alarm, and these are the firefighters that will then be called out. It sends that signal out via those cells, these T regulatory cells, to go and say acetylcholine needs to go out. And this is, we'll get into the mechanism of that, but the mechanism 
is mediated through this particular neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. We can get into some of the nutrition that's uh, underlying why this might be missing and why vagus nerve isn't able to work as well as we want it to. So let's let's talk about if you can share like how you look at sympathetic and parasympathetic because the vagus nerve is directly related to that and and then the assessment right so you know when somebody comes in with a radiculopathy this radiating leg or arm pain I mean listen we can get an EMG nerve conduction study done right so yeah. we can't really do this for the vagus nerve right that would be nope. horrible so from your clinical perspective what are you looking for when you see somebody with vagus nerve dysfunction how do you assess for that and then we can talk about how it affects other things than treatment absolutely i like to think of the vagus nerve as the brakes of the car so if our body was uh, simplified down to an automobile or car the sympathetic nervous system which is not mediated through a single nerve but rather an entire chain ganglia and all the nerves that come out of that it's quite extensive the sympathetic chain is basically the accelerator, right? We need to be able to push the gas to be able to go places, and that's necessary. I'm not stating anything that this is a bad system. If we didn't have a sympathetic nervous system, we would probably all be dead. Like, we wouldn't exist as a species because we wouldn't have an alarm signal saying that there's a stressor to our survival present. So this is that fight or flight system. This is necessary for the car to be able to move, Cars are useless if they don't have an accelerator, but they also need to have a control mechanism for that accelerator. And that control mechanism is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve runs the parasympathetic nervous system, which in, in action slows down the stressors and the stress response that's created through the sympathetic nervous system. So the accelerator will come on when there's stress, and the brakes will come on to tell us that the stress is either completed, done with, or doesn't need to be worried about anymore. Now, you can imagine thousands of years ago, the stressors were saber-toothed tigers or Vikings might come 18 months from now. The stressors were very different versus now where we have the stress of the person that cut you off in traffic. We have the stress of being able to pay your taxes when taxes are due. The the stress of your kids not wanting to go to bed at night, the stress of omega-6 seed oils all over the place, the stress of uh, EMFs or whatever we want to talk about that are major stressors to us. The accelerator has so many different things pushing the accelerator, pushing that sympathetic nervous system into this state of fight or flight. And what's happening is we're doing our best. We're pushing the brakes. We're pushing the brakes. And what's happening is those brake pads are wearing out. And that's vagal tone decreasing. That is our vagus nerve essentially being put in a state where it's being burnt out because we're pushing and pushing and pushing on the accelerator so much through so many different areas that it's burning this system out. And the vagus nerve is capable, but it is not entirely capable if we aren't giving it the tools that it needs to be able to do the job. So given the fact that you know, you, you treat people from basically all over the world, correct? Yep. So you can't do really like an examination per se, because they're not in front of you. Yeah. So what is it that they're sharing with you that you're saying, wow, this is, this is vagus. And how do you separate this? Because so many things are related to the vagus nerve. Yes. Have you ever seen cases where like, 
Yeah, I, I see the presentation and it's really not driven by Vegas. Like you know, there's some cognitive bias because this is what you resonate with. Yep. So, you know, is there something that you see that's not Vegas? So how do you assess this? Yeah. Being that you're virtual and what can you share with somebody who's, you know, still seeing patients, you know, other docs, clinicians are seeing patients in front of them. What can they look for? Yeah, for sure. So on the clinical side, the things that I'm looking for in particular, and I, I, I will agree there is some bias for sure, but I am not the one to say that the vagus nerve is at the root of all of these issues. The vagus nerve is the pathway to these d- diseases and conditions and challenges that we're experiencing, but it's not the root cause. The root cause is all of those inflammatory stressors that we are experiencing. And these are individual. Some people have more biochemical stressors. Some people have more emotional stressors. Some people have different types, physical, whatnot. And we all have uh, a set of each of these. Those are the root causes. And I still very much believe that those are the challenges. Mm -hmm. But to note whether the vagus nerve is affected, what I'm looking for symptomatically are a few different things. Heart rate is my number one. If you have a heart rate that is elevated or elevated compared to something that you used to have. So for example, I got really sick in November, just a really bad respiratory cold. I tested for COVID, never tested positive. Who knows? It might've been, but I had a really bad respiratory issue and my heart rate elevated by about 15 to 20 beats per minute, which was crazy to me to experience this. And I track with my aura ring. I've been using this thing for four years. So I know that my heart rate sits between 57 and 64. And if it goes up to 80, something is seriously wrong with Mm -hmm. my body. That's a sign that vagus nerve is under attack or being burnt out. So we're under sympathetic stress when something like that is happening. Okay. So I was noticing that was happening, but heart rate for me is the first sign because most people aren't tracking a bunch of other things. That is a really simple one that some people have wearable devices and they can see that something has shifted there. Number two is your breath. Are you breathing through your nose or are you breathing through your mouth? And how fast are you breathing? And what effect do you have when I ask you to take a deep breath in? Are you using your chest or are you using your belly? I'll have people put one hand on their chest, one hand on their belly, take a deep breath in and see what happens. And 50% of the time, the chest is what's moving. And the problem with that is we aren't supposed to be using our chest for driving that breath we're supposed to be using our diaphragm. Our diaphragm is our primary breathing muscle and our breathing patterns are, uh, for lack of a better word, absolute crap uh, across the world. Mm-hmm. 90% of people are not breathing correctly and we're putting ourselves into that sympathetic state simply by breathing incorrectly, by breathing through our mouth, by breathing with our chest. We're shifting our state into the stressed state And we're essentially priming the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight to be on, and we're turning the parasympathetic nervous system off. And so our breath patterns are going to be something that we're looking at. But the number one sign that it's specifically vagus nerve that is affected is heart rate variability, which is different. Heart rate variability is not your heart rate. What it takes is the med beats of the heart. So when we have an R interval, and a break, and then an R interval, and a break. The interval between those spikes and electrical activity to the the heart averaged over a period of time, creating variability. Many people think that we should have beats that are like a metronome, right? That they're happening rhythmically at the exact same pace 
over and over and over. And that's absolutely false. What we should be having is elevation and deceleration, acceleration of the heart rate, deceleration of the heart rate. And that should be happening variably through our lives throughout uh, different periods when we're monitoring. And what we're looking for is high levels of variability. The higher your variability, the more you're able to shift between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Between the two sides of the autonomic nervous system, we're able to shift. And if we're not able to make that shift effectively, it's often because the vagus nerve is not able to do the job. And what's happening is the variability is decreasing and we're becoming more of a metronome. And a metronome is not resilient to stress. And that's where the biggest issues come up. When our bodies can't handle the stress is when our vagus nerve is not able to do that job of managing inflammation within the body. Fantastic. So do you like one heart rate variability uh, wearable compared to another? What do you what do you say to patients they have when they check my heart rate variability? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, wearable devices are getting better by the sure. day almost. Um, my preference is uh, whatever your body is capable of using. I've used the Aura Ring for about four years. I really do love it. I know that it's not 100% accurate, um, but I hate having things on my wrists. So um, I'll wear watches rarely, but that's not something that I love to do. But there are great uh, wrist wearables that have some have greater evidence and greater accuracy to the heart rate variability levels. Something like Whoop Band has something like a 98% um, management. Uh, I've got a bio strap here as well, which is very, very accurate as well. A wristband, something that I've tested. Didn't love wearing the wrist thing. Um, I've used the finger tool from Elite HRV, the core sense monitor. Um, there's a bunch of these. And then we add on things like Apple Watch, Fitbit, Garmin. These are devices that people have. All in all, they're somewhere between 60 and 90% accurate. They're pretty good on average. My preference is whichever one you feel comfortable using. I love this one because I don't get buzzes that I have a notification from an email that's coming through, which uh, annoys the crap out of me when my wife gets those, which is fun. And it raises, right? So that, that whole sympathetic speed, right? Oh, somebody's messaging me. Somebody's right. walking past my front door. Right. Right, nuts. Um, so I love the Aura Ring personally. I take it off when I am uh, weightlifting because obviously you don't want to be scratching it up. But outside of that, that's not, uh, I, I do use this because I'm able to use it all day, every day, generally without any issue. And I can turn off the EMFs if I ever want to, or the, uh, the Bluetooth. So um, it's a great device for me personally, but pick and choose. And what I'm looking for is relatively good accuracy, but I want that, if it, even if it's not 100% accurate, I'm looking for trends. Trend is what you're looking for on HRV. You're never truly worried about, with heart rate variability, the absolute number. Okay. A lot of people are like, I've got this absolute number that I need to get to. I want to get to 80. I want to get to 80 milliseconds. I want to get to 90. I want to get to hundred milliseconds on my HRV. I don't care about the number. I want every day to be just slightly better than the last. Okay. And I want to note which habits, which lifestyle factors, which challenges, whether it's eating late, drinking alcohol, not drinking alcohol, not sleeping on time, watching TV at night, whether it's blue light exposure at nighttime or something that's triggering your HRV to go down, 
I want you to work to address those, get rid of those, and what will happen? Your HRV will automatically start to rise, which is really, really exciting. So for me, I'm looking for trend data. I want to see that we're elevating the HRV in the long term. And what that is, is long-term resilience, long-term ability to handle stressors as your life progresses, which is really exciting to me. So, which is great, because now you have this objective measurement um, and, and, and you can really see how things are progressing, moving forward in a positive direction. So when you work with clients, do you say, hey, listen, you got to go get something? Do you have all your clients get something to measure their HRV? I'll say about no. I'll say about 80 to 85% of my patients have a wearable device and the only other ones that don't um, likely just either had some financial issue that pushed them to not wanting to or not capable of doing it. Um, that was that's the most likely scenario, but I'll say 85% of my patients for sure have some form of wearable device that we get some data from because for me that data is empowerment, right? It's immediate feedback. It's letting you know what's working, what's not. It's letting you know what's happening with your heart rate. And that empowerment really drives responsibility and capability for being able to make positive changes in your life, which for me, nothing is better than empowerment. Because at the end of the day, I'm not the one that's doing the work. I'm not the one that's making the dietary changes or the lifestyle habit changes. It's on the patient. And I want them to feel empowered and I want to see the data so I can see what's causing things. And I can say, Hey, here was a blip. Your HRV went down on April 10th. What happened here? What happened? Was there a stressor? Did you just not sleep? Well, what happened? And I get to know exactly what caused that issue. And we can eliminate that type of stressor where possible, if it's something that the patient is then capable of using. So for me, wearable device data is just pure empowerment. I think it's, you know, great for the patient. I mean, yes, we want their symptoms to change for the better, but sometimes I feel that when they see that number improve, that gives them that reward and yeah. it gives them the motivation to continue improving their health, right? So I think, yeah. I think it really works out to their advantage. So as, as you discussed, there's so many things that can push this HRV in a negative way. In your practice, is there like one common denominator that you see like, boy, just every time this really pushes this HRV in a negative fashion. I mean, when we do like an elimination protocol in our practice, one of the things that we eliminate is news watching. Like you're yeah. done. Like if you're not going yeah. to eliminate watching all this crap yeah, and you're going to get rid of the food crap, get rid of the, the, the stuff that's going into your head as well, yeah. right? It's just not healthy. So is there one thing that you see like common, like a common denominator is like, yeah, this one just gets everyone. I don't want to say everyone because I personally don't drink, but alcohol is probably one of the biggest drivers of a, a huge dip in your HRV. Right. And I'm not here to be like, don't drink alcohol. Right. Right. I, I want to say, if you're going to do it, do it in moderation, see what your body's capable of handling. But I recently, and this is a, a great example to kind of share here. I had a, a longtime patient of mine, who uh, reached out saying, hey, my HRV is sitting in the 20s and I don't know, something's not working well and can we have a chat? So we had a, a good little chat um, a few weeks ago and I got a message from her literally the next day. And the, the thing that was happening was they were opening a bottle of wine almost every night, her and her husband. And I said, I, I just want to challenge you for, for one month, okay, to 
limit it to either one glass or just cut it out completely. And they decided for one week, they were just going to cut it out completely. And on the first day, remember her HRV was sitting in the twenties. The first day her HRV went up to 63. Ah. It's just a massive shift that her body was saying, we're under stress, right? The liver is working hard to detoxify the the stomach, the digestive tract are probably under some level of stress from the amount that you're consuming. Let's do something about this. Let's it's it's your body literally asking you to let's shift things a little bit because what'll happen is that that elevation is going to happen immediately. Now the sustainability of that was it, it didn't stay in the 63 level, but it came back into the 30s and 40s on a regular basis, which is where she was standing prior to um, the last time we had a call. So it's it's gotten her back to a point where she's more resilient than she was when she called me. And that's what I'm looking for, right? Yeah, that 63 was a wonderful number, and I would love to see you in the 60s all the time. But if your body is is functioning better than it was, that's what I'm looking for. Gotcha. So let's move into the clinical presentations and, you know, dysfunction that we'll see in the office um, when talking about the vagus nerve. So one of them that I find interesting is, is POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So can you talk about relationship to that, the vagus yeah. nerve and POTS? And also, um, we'll have some mast cell activation syndromes that come in the office and, you know, the vagus definitely plays a role in that. Right? So this again, this very upregulated person. Um, so can you discuss the role of the vagus nerve in those two presentations? For sure. POTS is, for those who don't know, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is literally a vagus nerve dysfunction issue. And that is because the branch of vagus nerve that is literally beside the carotid artery in the neck actually sends these baroreceptors into the carotid artery. So it's actually connected to this artery to measure blood pressure, okay? And what they're doing, these baroreceptors are feeding back to the brain saying our blood pressure is within this actual area where it should be. And so we are able to stand, we're able to sit, we're able to move accordingly because our blood pressure is monitored and managed through that system. When the vagus nerve is dysfunctional, what can happen is somebody who's laying down, getting up to standing or sitting to standing can often, and we all have this as a drop in our blood pressure when we initially stand up. What that does is in somebody who has POTS or vagus nerve dysfunction, it actually causes them to uh, not be able to monitor that blood pressure drop and not be able to adjust blood, blood pressure or um, dilation of blood vessel accordingly, constriction dilation of blood vessels throughout the rest of the body accordingly, which means that the blood pressure drops even further and they often will have like a fainting spell or fall backwards or in what one direction they'll lose their balance accordingly and the dizziness and the nausea that's associated with that are the major symptoms so it's the getting up from a seated or laying down position and having that fainting spell occur which is the most common issue so tachycardia means that your blood uh, blood pressure is dropping and then your heart rate will drop accordingly your tachycardia so your heart rate will drop uh, because your heart rate or your blood pressure has dropped. And so it's trying to manage it without the effect of your vagus nerve effectively feeding back to the brain saying what's going on here. Okay. Yeah. Um, with that in particular, and I think, did you have something to cut in there with? 
No, it, it was just, you know, that's what we'll see in the office, you know, that, that same presentation that you bring, right? So it's, yeah, absolutely. And it's not, in a, in a, and obviously, again, in the conventional world, it's like, you know, start taking the meds and yeah. not the, the vagus nerve won't even be addressed. Yeah, of course. And that's uh, really quite unfortunate and uh, a really low-hanging fruit that needs to be addressed, I would say for sure. For me, that's that's probably one of the, the most important things that is not worked on. Now with POTS in, in particular, what um, can happen there on the therapeutic side is helping to regain vagus nerve tone, meaning that the vagus nerve is able to start sending more signals more effectively. And what that does is when the vagus nerve gets activated through different exercises, through different tools, it starts to lower these symptomatic events. And we start to be able to get up a little bit more quickly from that seated or laying position. And it does work for quite a few people. There are different ways to stimulate the vagus nerve, uh, lots of exercises, which we'll chat about, um, and some amazing therapeutic devices that may have uh, some phenomenal uh, results for a lot of patients. Excellent. And, and mast cell activation yeah. syndrome. So on the mast cell side, this is linked directly to that cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. Right. And we've got branches of this vagus nerve that goes out to all of those organs that I mentioned earlier, heart, lung, stomach, liver, uh, gallbladder, pancreas, intestines, etc. And then through the spleen, we have this amplification system that goes out to all of the organs that the vagus nerve does not innervate. So the bones, the muscles, the joints, every other place you can potentially think of through splenic amplification of that acetylcholine. And the acetylcholine is then targeting immune cells to tell them that we are not under stress, okay? And those immune cells can be macrophages, which are present in every organ of our body. They're necessary for monitoring. They're necessary for um, ensuring that these systems are working, that the bones are being broken down and built up, that the muscles are being built up and broken down, that the, the uh, gut lining is nice and strong we have this immune system cell that's present there, but then we also have to think about the other immune system cells. Specifically, when it comes to mast cell activation, we're looking particularly at the basophils and eosinophils, which if you've ever got your blood work done and they do a complete blood count CBC, it'll specifically say, you'll see eosinophils, basophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, etc. And that's what we're looking for. And what we're Monitoring when it comes to mast cell activation in particular is more commonly eosinophils and basophils being elevated or being hyperactivated. And mast cell activation, what happens there is they're not getting that acetylcholine reaction to downregulate their function on the eosinophil and basophil side. And that can lead to uh, sensitivities or specific um, degranulation of those cells leading to like histamine style reactions, okay? So what feels like an allergy, but doesn't necessarily hit exactly like an allergy, okay? It's kind of a, a level down from an allergy. And so mast cell activation syndrome often occurs because there is a threat or there is something that's triggering that uh, immune system cell to become activated. So it can be a specific food, it can be a specific environmental challenge, like a pollen or something along those lines. And more commonly than not, there's a, a common thread there that not only is the acetylcholine not getting there to shut down that 
uh, degranulation process through the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. But on top of that, a lot of these people have a leaky gut. And that is often what's allowing the hyperactivation or the hypersensitization to occur because when the gut is leaky, that is secondary to vagus nerve not being functional because the macrophages that are present just underneath those epithelial cells that are uh, lining the gut are the ones that are there trying to promote gut regulation and uh, lack of permeability or getting very selective with the permeability that's present within the gut lining. The macrophages drive this. When the vagus nerve is working well, we tend not to have a leaky gut. When the vagus nerve is not working well, we have more propensity towards a leaky gut. Add in microbiome issues, add in food sensitivity issues, add in major other stressors, and all of a sudden we have this perfect storm of leaky gut leading to autoimmunity or uh, some sort of dysbiotic issue leading to another challenge and vagus nerve is dysfunctional underlying all of these major issues. And so on the specific case of mast cell activation, it's often linked to some sort of food sensitivity and some sort of environmental sensitivity, taking advantage of that opportunity when the vagus nerve is not working super well. Fantastic. So let's let's workshop this next one together, right? We can think about this one together because somebody wrote something in. First of all, our colleague, uh, Dr. Erica Bondolith, you know, she writes that this is such an important topic. So she was on with us for a while. So here's this here's the statement that we got right now. Somebody just wrote this in. Uh, the statement about the dilation and constriction of vessels causing lightheadedness has me wondering. I don't experience lightheadedness, and my blood pressure has always been super consistently good. However, could there be a connection to the erythmalgia in my feet? So this significant burning in the feet, the redness, the changing of the color, the tone, could that be related? So in my my thought process is, again, because the vagus nerve is so important, how could it not be related? So do you have any thought process on that? We'll just, just speak out loud among each other right now as we workshop that. Thank I you, Denise, for writing that for, in. Sure. for sure. I don't have a direct answer, Denise, but I will say um, that it sounds almost like a, an initial step of dysautonomia, which is kind of an initial stage of vagus nerve dysfunction, right? So what we have is uh, good blood pressure, which is great, but you're noticing that you've got this, this pain in your feet that is likely triggered by some form of inflammation within the body that is uncontrolled. Temperature and changes, right? Big temperature, temperature changes. changes in specific. Temperature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so in some cases, temperature changes are enough to trigger uh, that specific pain reaction. And so with vagus nerve potentially not working super well, that can allow the inflammatory reaction to occur internally. Right. I mean, this will, you know, this is the segue into the discussion of the vagus nerve in relation to, you know, the autoimmune presentations, whether we're looking at, you know, our Hashimoto's, a multiple sclerosis, you know, uh, rheumatoid, you know, I mean, it, the vagus nerve plays a large role in that autoimmune presentation. Yeah. And really interestingly on that specific um, area, you mentioned rheumatoid arthritis. When the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway was discovered by Kevin Tracy, it was rheumatoid arthritis that they were looking at getting rid of. And what they had done was they had uh, animal subjects that they were utilizing and they had induced or had rheumatoid arthritis. And what they initially did was they removed the spleen. They did a splenectomy and the rheumatoid arthritis symptoms went away. 
Shocking, right? Why would that even happen? Then they said, okay, well, what's this pathway that's leading to the spleen being the source of these inflammatory reactions occurring? And they led it back to the sympathetic chain and that splenic nerve. So they cut that and they had the same reaction. Then they went back to the sympathetic chain and they cut the sympathetic chain and nothing happened. And then they noticed that there was a vagus nerve branch. So they cut the vagus nerve branch and that's exactly what happened. The exact same reaction occurred where they were able to control the inflammation when they cut the vagus nerve. Then they decided, well, if you cut it, what if you stimulate it? What if there was an electrical stimulation that went to this to actually create this uh, effect and it had exactly the same response. When they electrically stimulated the vagus nerve, they were able to decrease the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis via that splenic, uh, splenic pathway. And so that was the really important discovery pathway that led them to this discovery of the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway and the importance of the vagus nerve being involved there. But it was RA that drove it. Wow. So let's talk about two neurodegenerative uh, presentations, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Yeah, 100%. These are great discussion topics. On the topic of both, I've talked about vagus nerve and I've talked about the um, efferent branches, so meaning the peripheral branches of the vagus nerve. If you go back to in the, in the discussion that we had to the anatomy piece, that we have these four nuclei in the brainstem that vagus nerve originates from, there are pathways from those four nuclei up into the brain as well. And up into the brain, what it's going to do is it's going to send up a signal to the immune cells that are present within the brain. And this is important because it utilizes the same chemical acetylcholine to help manage these cells. Now in the brain, those macrophages, those immune cells that are present are called microglia. And microglia initially were just thought to be the glue that held the neurons together. That's kind of where they came from. That's why they were named microglia because they were small and they were sticky. And over time, we've realized that these microglia are necessary and more than even just necessary, they are absolutely the, the glue that holds the entire function of the brain together because they are the, the uh, cells that manage neuroplasticity, and they're the cells that manage any threats that come through into the brain as well. Now, in the cases of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, on Alzheimer's specifically, let's talk about this. This is type 3 diabetes. This is blood sugar dysregulation within the brain. Alzheimer's is a progressive diabetes of the brain, basically. And what happens here is metabolic dysregulation, right? We have insulin resistance that gets to a point where our brain is getting to a point where it's unable to really utilize that anymore because the insulin receptors that are present in the brain go away. And now what we've added is an inflammatory mechanism within the brain through which we have metabolic dysregulation of all of the cells in the brain and the microglia start to become a little bit more attacking and they break down more neurons. And that leads to the specific patterns of Alzheimer's disease, meaning dementia basically, okay? So we start to lose our uh, cognitive function when we get to that specific area. So in most people, it's going to be prefrontal cortex and some people it'll be auditory and some people it'll be different areas and we'll have different presentations within that Alzheimer's, but it's essentially diabetes within the brain and it's a metabolic issue in, uh, in its root cause. On the Parkinson's side, Parkinson's is 
the dopamine centers are being burnt out. And what we essentially have is a tremor that occurs. We get this tremor reaction, and that happens because we have microglial activation in certain areas, specifically the nuclei that are producing dopamine. Okay. Um, it's microglial activation in both of these areas. So neurodegeneration, any neurodegenerative condition, whether it's uh, dementia, whether it's uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, even if we get to schizophrenia, autism, they all have the same mechanism. It's just different times and uh, different routes of action, different areas that are going to be affected. Now, when it comes to vagus nerve, there is a lot of really positive data showing uh, stimulation of the vagus nerve, both through exercise techniques and through electrical stimulation, can have significant improvements on Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, and we're working on the ADHD, ADD, autism uh, side as well, and learning more about that. But uh, those first four have very, very promising results. Um, I'll give you one case study with regards to Parkinson's specifically. On the Parkinson's side, I have a client that came to see me, let's say about six months ago, and was diagnosed with Parkinson's 15 years ago. The first symptom was that he lost his sense of smell uh, about three years prior to that. So anosmia is one of the first signs of Parkinson's. Um, we did some assessment, we did some work, we figured out that there were some microbiome issues, we've been working on that. Recently, I added electrical vagus nerve stimulation into his care. It's been a few months now. And week one, he responded very, very positively. He sent me a message, he said, my energy is up, I feel more capable, I have shifted the times that I'm doing my electrical stimulation to morning and noon, because the nighttime he was just getting too energized and too activated, he just didn't want to do it then. So we shifted it to morning and noon, and he was doing really well. And then I got a message two weeks in. He said, this morning, I smelt bacon cooking downstairs. Wow. And he went downstairs, and his wife was cooking bacon. Initially, he thought he was having a stroke because he could smell something. <laughs> in reality, his sense of smell came back two weeks into doing electrical stimulation. He's noticed significant improvement in so many different areas. It smells not 100%, but it certainly is way better than it has been for the last 18 years. Uh, just a phenomenal uh, result that we got in such a short time period. I expect something like this to happen months into therapy, but we got it two weeks in with his particular case. That was a really exciting one. That's, that's fantastic. And, that, and that's going to just Absolutely wonderful, you know, from a clin clinician perspective, for sure. So I want to talk about the gut. I mean, we see a lot of gut in the office, a lot of GI dysfunction. And the one I really want to touch on is constipation. Mm. Right? So because that's such a, a, a biggie. Yeah. Um, you know, we have those who feel like there's not even a feeling like they need to go. There's no initiation whatsoever, just no signal. Mm -hmm. Then we have those who go, but it's a smaller bowel movement, right? It's like they, what they call those rabbiters. Yeah. Then we have those who go and it's like a damn wrestling match. And then we have those who go and they say they went, but boy, they just don't feel fully evacuated. Mm -hmm. so we talk about the vagus nerve in relation to constipation. Yeah, for sure. 
when it comes to the gut, peristalsis is the name of the game, right? We need the gut to do two different things. We need it to move the food along in a unidirectional pathway. It's got to go top down, which if we get into some of the eating disorders, it goes the opposite direction. And that's a whole nother uh, ball of wax there and something to uh, look into as, as a potential root cause for vagus nerve dysfunction just down the road um, as a fun little clinical pearl. But we need that motion to occur in a unidirectional pathway and we need to be able to extract nutrients from the food that comes in via the stomach, the, particularly the small intestine, and then to be able to get rid of the toxins through the large intestine to evacuate, get rid of the, the challenges, the toxins, and the dead microbiome that's present there. And being able to eliminate that is absolutely key. Um, if we are constipated or if we're dealing with a dysregulated bowel, what we're essentially doing is we're not allowing for detoxification to occur and the toxic burden on the body will increase drastically. So regular bowel movements of full and complete emptying is necessary for optimal function without a doubt. What the vagus nerve has to do with here is uh, it has to do with that motion pattern. So the reflex that occurs when the food enters a small intestine, we get a reflex of something's here. There's a bolus that's entered and the stretch receptors in the intestinal walls get activated and they send a signal through the vagus nerve up to the brain saying, hey, there's something here. And we don't become fully conscious of this, but you can feel when there's stuff that isn't moving. And ideally that sends a signal back down through the vagus nerve saying, okay, you're open. Now you need to push this across and that allows for the peristaltic motion to occur. And that allows for movement of that bolus of food to go down and become stools and get released. When that reaction is not occurring because a stress reaction is not sending a signal through the vagus nerve, it's initially telling us that the vagus nerve is dysfunctional. So vagus nerve dysfunction is involved in that stress response or stretch response, excuse me. And we're also then not able to get that signal from the brain through the vagus nerve to say, okay, get that movement going, okay? There's a few things that can be causing this. Most commonly, there's some sort of microbiome dysfunction that is present there. If it's a gut issue, we need to address the microbiome, no question. We need to understand what's living there. Bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast, worms. I had a yeast issue myself. I had, I've dealt with IBS issues way back. I can look back at my life when I was a teenager and I, I can pick out the days when I knew things were not going to be working out because of challenges that I was experiencing stress-wise or whatever. And if we're not getting that vagus nerve signal there, then that movement can't occur. It's absolutely uh, a necessity. So what we need to do is address that microbiome and we need to address other stressors as well. And something that I found works really, really well for this, in addition to activating kind of humming exercises and vagus nerve activating exercises like deep breathing is actually exercise even just going for a walk can be very, very activating for the gut because it's very calming. And what that does is it allows for an opportunity to the vagus nerve to send signals where it needs to go, okay? I notice after I weight train, which I do three days a week, I'm, I come home and I'm ready to go. Like it's, it's an immediate reaction in my body saying, yep, you've worked out, we've felt that motion pattern, we felt your breathing pattern, we felt the mechanical transduction of uh, 
these movements that you were doing, and now we are ready to go and eliminate whatever is present here. Um, I'm lucky in the fact that at this point I'm very regular and things work really nicely for me. Uh, but that is an, a really interesting potential mechanism to help those who are dealing with constipation add in some form of movement or exercise with deep breathing, calming diaphragmatic movement. That movement of the diaphragm is not only necessary to create the vacuum of air entering our lungs, but that diaphragm, when it comes down, actually creates motion within the intestinal and, and abdominal wall. And that motion in the abdomen is actually going to allow for that peristaltic motion to occur and start to eliminate some of those toxins and things that are built up in the gut. You know, it's like when, when yeah, the, the kids are small and they're constipated, you lay them on their back and you work their legs, you know, because you're stimulating that movement, which hopefully stimulates their ability to finally pass stool. Um, yeah, you know. absolutely. So, before we get on to treatment, we'd be remiss not to discuss the latest and greatest thing about immune system, right? What we're seeing in the office now is like, you know, we have to talk about long COVID. Yeah. Um, I think that's important because you want to talk about vagus nerve involvement. I mean, we see this in the office. Um, we, we have to talk about that, right? So yeah. can you share about the vagus nerve involvement and that? Yeah, 100%. So with regards to long COVID, and it's a great question, really important one to bring up. Long COVID is triggered by an inflammatory cytokine storm. And everybody who's experienced COVID um, knows what that kind of knockdown feeling is, the fatigue, the challenge, the brain fog, all of those specific feelings that they had when they were initially feeling the, uh, the symptoms of the COVID infection. But Months later, if they're still experiencing some of those things like the fatigue, the brain fog, the challenge, those people often had a vagus nerve dysfunction underlying to begin with, that their brakes were burnt out to the point where this inflammatory cytokine storm, which was as severe a cytokine storm as you're likely going to experience ever in your life, pushed the brake pads off completely. And so we are experiencing this crazy inflammatory reaction in our brain and in almost every organ of our body at, at a level that the body was never capable of experiencing before, which we're, what we are essentially experiencing now is this chronic fatigue syndrome on a scale greater than we've ever experienced. And chronic fatigue is essentially vagus nerve dysfunction, um, but in a chronic timeline. What's experienced, what's being experienced now is an acute timeline leading to a subacute long COVID type of symptom, but it has 100% everything to do with an underlying vagus nerve dysfunction. There are some great studies coming out on electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve for long COVID being probably one of the best uh, treatments that you could ever uh, allow for and, and get great results with. Right. And even like those who have the respiratory issues still months after, you know, climbing the stairs, just like winded. Right. So, you know, we can talk about how important, you know, mild exercise is in its extreme, extremely important in long COVID, you know. Um, but also, I feel like if we don't do vagus nerve training, then we're missing a very large piece that can move that physiological needle forward. So. We arrived at the time, finally. So let's talk about treatment, right? Because everybody, you know, again, just just tell me what to do, doc, and I'll do it, right? That's what they know, right? And we wish it was so easy. 
in that one statement. And I wish everybody would just do what we tell them to do, yeah, right? Exactly. So that would be cool too. So, you know, let's start with some easy types of treatments that somebody can do. Yeah. The basic ones, my top three, no question. Deep breathing exercises, if you're capable of handling them, obviously, if long COVID and um, being out of breath dyspnea are an issue for you, um, we don't want to push too hard on that. But what we want to do is work on diaphragmatic breathing first. Okay, so head on the chest, hand on the belly, check where your breath is. Is it more in the chest? Is it more in the belly? Uh, this is something that I utilize even with my kids, my almost six-year-old. We'll have a little bit of a breakdown here and there. My sister stole this toy or something happened and she loses her mind a little bit and we have to calm down. And in those instances, I will have uh, her lay down for a moment or kind of sit with me for a moment. I'll put a hand on her belly and I'll ask her what her favorite color is and what just to visualize a balloon essentially. And so it'll be a, either a purple balloon or a rainbow balloon. And, Often Elsa is showing up on there as well for all the Frozen fans that are out there. And what she has to do is visualize that Elsa rainbow balloon present in her belly where my hand is. And she has to blow up that balloon. And she has to do it slowly and calmly. And we get her to do that slow inhale through her nose, calm things down, slow exhale. And really, really important that we slow the exhale down. The, the reason for variability in our heart rate has a lot to do with our breath patterns. When we inhale, whether through our nose or our mouth, our heart rate increases. That's a sympathetic activation. Very slightly, but it happens. When we exhale, our heart rate comes down. That's a parasympathetic activation. So what we're looking for is a, a shorter, relatively shorter inhale and a relatively longer exhale. That's why something like four, seven, eight breathing patterns where you do four seconds of inhale, seven second hold, eight second exhale is a phenomenal tool for working on getting into a parasympathetic state simply by using your breath. Okay. Um, it's the same mechanism by which pursed lip breathing was used for anxiety when people are in this anxious state or uh, in a trauma response after an acute event will often as a first aider, I remember doing this as a lifeguard have our uh, subject slow their breathing by purse lip breathing, right? Uh, a great little thing because what it's doing is it's slowing the exhale down. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really important. So I'll do this with my daughter. I'll do it with my patients. And it's something that I'm a huge proponent of that four, seven, eight breath is a wonderful tool for training that diaphragmatic breath and slowing the exhale down and really moving you into that parasympathetic zone. This is also great for those that are having trouble with sleep. So doing this for five to 10 minutes before you go to bed, four seconds in, seven second hold, eight seconds out, really brings you into that parasympathetic zone really effectively. So breathing is simple, easy, you know, one of the easiest things that you, you can start to do. And um, entirely free. <laughs> entirely free, right? So, you know, we talk about, you know, nasal breathing. Um, I think it's so important. And when I say this to me that, you know, there's mouth tape that you can get, but you'll see the like almost like when they, when you say like my mouth is covered, like, and you'll see them like go like this. I, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm like, just because that reaction in of itself is the reason why we got to really start doing that. Right. Cause you should be able to, you know, and breathe through your nose. Right. You should yeah. be able to, but they're not. So just having that reaction, I'm kind of like, okay, well, this is a great place to start. Yeah. About 50% of my patients use mouth tape. 
and have noticed phenomenal results with their sleep. And sleep is the time when your vagus nerve is most active because A, you're laying down, B, you're breathing more slowly, and C, there's no stress. You're asleep, literally. And so you're allowing your vagus nerve to work. And if you really want to allow your vagus nerve to work and your HRV to be elevated the next day so you can go out and be more productive, you have to breathe through your nose. Really, really important that that happens. So I'm a big proponent. I utilize belt tape myself. Uh, game changer, no question about it. Um, for those who have trouble breathing through their nose, I, I often do as well. I'll utilize a, a breathe right nasal strip or a nasal dilator to help open up the nose at the same time. So I look hilarious at night, but I sleep well, and that's all that matters. Right. As I'm, yeah. I mean, unless you have some underlying, you know, the, if the turbinates are so inflamed and, and you can't, I, I understand. So we're saying, don't do that, you know, but again, a very simple, easy thing to do. What about gargling? Yeah. Huge fan of gargling. And this goes back to those pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles that are innervated by the vagus nerve. So uh, humming, chanting, gargling, anything that creates a vocalization is great. Gargling is kind of that next level within those, uh, those vocalizations, because what you're doing is you're adding water to the mix. You're ensuring that you have control of that water within your mouth, that you're not aspirating that water or letting it go down into your lungs. And so it's really important to have that happen. So it's a vocalization, it's a long exhale, and it's ensuring that you have control between your trachea and your esophagus, and you have the ability to control where that water is present in your, uh, in your mouth and in your throat. And you're triggering activation of those pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles. So I'm a huge fan. I'll have my patients keep a glass by their sink. Um, every time they brush their teeth, morning and evening, obviously, um, add in a bit of water. You can add a little bit of salt. It helps to break up some of the mucus at the back of your throat, which is wonderful as well. Take a sip and gargle as hard as you physically possibly can. Okay, It's key where, where you're starting. Don't worry about it too much. But as you get to a level where you really want to get good, push as hard as you can. And you'll know that this is working because you're getting activation of the brainstem, especially those four specific nuclei, when you start to have tears coming out of your eyes. So when you're gargling as hard as you possibly can, you should start to see tears coming out of your eyes. That's a sign that your vagus nerve is being activated at the brainstem site really effectively using gargling. Really great for those who are dealing with digestive dysfunctions, particularly uh, constipation. You know, now the other thing you can do as a challenge is take on, you know, the, the, the throat singing. Ever see those people who throat sing, right? So you want to talk about an activation of the pharyngeal muscles and laryngeal. I mean, I mean, that is amazing to watch. And if you watch him start, some, I think one guy had on Instagram, like he started in the beginning and it was like he could barely do this. And as he trained over time, it's amazing. So, you know, I'm thinking his Vegas nerve has got to be, you know, top notch. So, Singers have some of the best Vegas nerves. And, and best breathing, right? So, you know, their, their breathing capabilities are amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about, I always say, you know, Tom Page, listen, the, the power of health is really at the end of your fork, right? So Ooh. it's what we're eating. So can we talk a little bit about diet in relation to, you know, improving, supporting the vagus nerve. Yeah, huge piece here. Um, and this has a lot to do with a couple different areas. First off, your diet's going to affect your gut, right? Your gut lining is going to be linked to uh, microbiome and food and the interaction that occurs within the gut itself. And so we don't want to add a lot of inflammatory foods in there to begin with, because it's just adding to things that are pushing on the accelerator, burning out the brakes that we, uh, we don't want to have happen. So 
Number one, let's cut out the inflammatory foods. Number two, on the biochemistry of the vagus nerve, we're looking at the production of the neurotransmitter that's required, which is acetylcholine. Okay. Now, this is made up of acetyl-CoA and choline. Acetyl-CoA is produced in the mitochondria. Michael, do you have any patients with mitochondrial dysfunction? <laughs> what patients don't have the mitochondrial dysfunction? Anyone lacking <laughs> B vitamins, B1, B3, uh, carnitine, yeah. anything like that? Right. Basically oh. everybody, right? So A, we're having trouble producing acetyl-CoA because we have mitochondrial dysfunction and these nutrients are missing across the board. Number two, 90%, and this is a CDC stat, this is crazy, 90% of people in, in North America are deficient in choline. So we're missing the acetyl-CoA, we're missing the choline, and these are the two pieces that need to be put together to allow the vagus nerve to send its signals out and do the job that it needs to do. So how do we do this? We're missing often the B vitamins that are necessary for mitochondrial function to be present, to be optimized, particularly the carb and fat metabolism pieces prior to mitochondrial function being optimized. So I'm not as concerned with regards to this particular area with uh, amino acids, but I'm really concerned with the B vitamins, carnitine, coenzyme Q10, lipoic acid, and not having things like insulin resistance present because that insulin, insulin resistance is not allowing you to produce acetyl-CoA as effectively as you should be. So number one, B vitamins, let's get them in ideally through food, but not everybody has that capability. Uh, supplements are a great way to do so supplementally. That's why they're called supplements. Right. Number two is choline. And so we need to be able to get choline in. Choline is a, uh, basically it's, it's like a small peptide type of uh, nutrient that needs to be entering. It is not an amino acid. It is a, a part of an amino acid sort of, and it, it's present in a lot of foods, which is really exciting. And the main ones, the most bioavailable ones, uh, number one on top of the list by a long shot is egg yolk. Okay. Have you heard that uh, cholesterol might be an issue with yeah. eggs? Is that, should we, we should all stop eating eggs, right? Because of cholesterol. Yeah, not, not in my world. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, what a joke that is. That's um, as, as a joke and then some, right? That, that's, a, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. We go down that, a whole right? other rabbit hole there. Um, the choline that we, that is bioavailable, that we can absorb comes from those egg yolks that contain cholesterol. Funny enough, that cholesterol from eggs is not doing anything to your dietary, to your body cholesterol. So throw that out the window and let's get those eggs back into our diet where possible. Sure. Um, most importantly, runny egg yolks. Okay. So uh, frying an egg sunny side up or something like that, keep them runny, really important. I love steaming eggs with my kids. Mm -hmm. um, I don't love hard boiled. Nobody really does. Crumbly, weird feeling. Um, but I do a soft boil and the kids love it. And we have these runny yolks and choline is getting in through those eggs. Um, if you are vegan and you're avoiding kind of the eggs uh, specifically for other reasons, which I may not fully understand, but I appreciate. Right. Um, soy is a great form of uh, choline. It's not super bioavailable, but you can get it through like tofu soy um, does have it as well. And uh, there are some nuts and seeds that will contain choline as well. 
but without a doubt, I would be getting it from meat and eggs as being my top options. No question about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, soy, tempa, seitan, I mean, I guess you can get it from them, but you just can't get it in the abundance that you can when you get it in eggs. So that, that's the, that's the problem with that. Yeah. You know? Quantity bioavailability. Right. Right. And we, and we really, you know, and eating too much, too much nuts. Right. Cause I mean, that's what happens is the portion size is good, but most people walk the back from the kitchen to the front of the TV and they're eating yeah. two and three times the portion size. And that's where, you know, this, this wonderful omega six begins to work against you. You know, 100%. So, I mean, we talked, you know, tonight about a lot of, you know, these clinical presentations and the vagus nerve, right? So we, you know, somebody could be thinking now, well, you know, these, these guys are talking about, you know, these diagnoses, these clinical problems, but at the start of this, she shares me like how stimulating the vagus nerve is actually great for cognitive. So can we talk about that? Yeah. So this is some really exciting research that's coming out of a few different companies right now, a few different labs. And in particular, the big one is it's coming out of the Air Force, uh, the U.S. Air Force. So the U.S. Air Force um, is putting a lot of money into helping drone pilots, snipers, um, their, their defense language teams, all being able to perform at a higher level. What are the things that they can utilize? And they've tested dozens, if not hundreds of new tools. And one of the most effective tools that they've found is electrical vagus nerve stimulation. Okay. Uh, there's a company that I consult with that is um, working on getting these devices, these electrical vagus nerve stimulators for the neck that are non-invasive. I literally have a couple of them standing here, but I'm not supposed to show you guys. Um, and what these electrical vagus nerve stimulation tools do is they electrically activate the nerve at the neck site and on the cognitive function side some of the really cool things that they've noticed is drone pilots were uh, sleep deprived for a period of time and then there was a group that was stimulated with the electrical vagus nerve stimulator and a group that was not so a control group the group that was not stimulated had a lot more trouble on uh, staying awake staying alert and completing particular memory tasks and were unable to remember things months later uh, when they retested or when they checked to see what the memory recall was of a task that they performed during that time where the team, the group that was vagus nerve stimulated electrically had 30% improvements in focus, alertness and memory recall across the board, which was huge. Such a huge simple thing with literally two minutes of electrical stimulation done um, when they were uh, going through that test. So it was a single stimulation done and 30% change that occurred over that period of time. Such a wonderful result. So these drone pilots are able to stay more alert, um, deal with sleep deprivation more effectively and get really effective sleep later on as well, which allowed for the memory recall to occur as well. So great little tool. Another one that just recently was just uh, posted or uh, just done in a, a presentation this past week was uh, the defense language learning uh, area through the Air Force uh, sped up the speed at which uh, their agents were able to learn a second language by mm -hmm. almost an entire day with vagus nerve stimulation. So it went from four days to three days when they vaguely stimulated. What a ridiculous yeah. discovery. Like if you can speed up 
the speed at which somebody can learn a language by 25% with two-minute stimulations. I don't know the specifics on that exact study, but it was just presented. It's such a huge revelation in, in cognitive function and cognitive performance. This is essentially a massive biohack against inflammation and being able to improve neuroplasticity across the board. What a huge possibility this thing has. Uh, I'm a huge fan and I'm a big proponent of this because I've seen kids get smarter with this. I now I'm hearing about um, these massive changes through the Air Force and I'm really excited to see what this technology allows us to do real soon. That's absolutely amazing. I, I, you know, yes, I get it from the disease, dysfunction, and presentation, but to use this as a tool to improve our cognitive, uh, our, our thinking processes, right? Just to improve those. Because, you know, a lot we'll hear in the office, like, I just don't feel as sharp mm-hmm. as I used to, right? A lot of patients will will say that. So, you know, I wonder, like, using this again for those brain fog patients, but again, that goes back to inflammation process as well. So, you know, we we can keep going. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I think it's a fantastic topic. I can't thank you enough for tonight. It was really great. A lot of stuff um, I hope everybody learned from tonight. I learned from tonight. It was, it was really good. So um, can you share with everybody how they can get in touch with you and where they can purchase the books? That's one of the questions I have for you now. For sure. Um, you can find me on any social media platform, uh, Dr. Navaz Habib, or at Health Upgraded. And uh, Health Upgraded is my online clinical consulting company that uh, we work with people all over the world. And then the book is called Activate Your Vagus Nerve. You can get it uh, online or at any U.S. bookstore. Canadian bookstores don't have them in stock anymore, but they are available through Barnes & Noble, Amazon, whatever. So um, feel free to grab them. And just a fun little side note for everybody who is sticking around to this point of the video, um, book number two is on its way and will be out uh, early next year. Fantastic, fantastic. And my question to you before we close this down is what book are you reading now? It's a really good question. I am listening to, because I do audio books while I work out, um, The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McKeon. Interesting. And what yeah. is the premise of that one? I'm not familiar with that one. It's about optimizing your breathing and understanding where um, CO2 tolerance actually plays a really important role in uh, improving your cardiovascular and aerobic capacity. So. The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McKeon. It's a few years old, uh, but I am very, very excited about it. Is he touching on nitric oxide as well? He is, as well as nasal breathing entirely. It's a yeah. huge, huge topic. The, the topic of nitric oxide is absolutely interesting to me as well. So absolutely. That's a, that's a whole other conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for tonight. I really appreciate your time uh, sharing all this great knowledge. And I really look forward to speaking with you again, especially when the second book comes out. So Absolutely. It'll happen real soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for watching tonight. Thank you.